chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. To the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine Twenty Four Seven Podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz here with me. We're writing up lots of stories as we close in on the Michigan football team season. Check out the stories from myself, Steve, Josh Henschke, Josh Newkirk, Bryce Marich, Sam Webb, and and uh, as well as other writers in our entire network over at the MichiganInsider.com, Michigan.247Sports.com. We also podcast what two, three, four times a week. Steve and I get together for a football podcast twice a week. Um, Sam, Steve, and Josh and Bryce do the recruiting podcast once a week. And then Sam and Tim McCormick and Josh Henschke do the basketball podcast once a week. So you you should get your fix, whether you like listening to stuff about Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting, or reading about it, or both. Uh, you should be able to find it all here. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe, uh, throw us a rating, Share it with your friends. Maybe your friends might like it too. It's a possibility. If you like it, odds are you and your friends have connected over discussions about Michigan football. But anyway, this episode is a mailbag episode. So we're going to try to work this in a little bit more. But you know, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks, once the season gets going, uh, we'll field some questions or field. Yeah, we'll field some of the questions you have. You can always send them my way, underscore Zach Shaw. Uh, or tremendous um, you can bug us. We'll we'll try to keep it in mind. We'll also send out a tweet that you can respond to for the podcast. But let's start. Let's start with this one from Matt DePoint. He says, "Any predictions on how no fans will impact games? Also, how will late fall weather in the Midwest impact games?" So, I I think we've touched on it a little bit in the past, but this is an interesting one that I don't think is being asked enough about coaches in the Big Ten because I think this is a huge deal. And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. You're welcome to disagree, Steve. But I think it is, um, and by the huge deal, I actually mean the weather. We can talk about the no fans in a moment, but sticking with the weather, Michigan is going to host a game in December for the first time ever. And they are going to play a regular season game in December for the first time that wasn't in Hawaii ever they've done a couple i think it was 98 and 86 they did trips to hawaii between the ohio state game and the bowl game but it's it's significant i mean we, we we've talked in the past seasons like oh you know it's gonna be 35 40 degrees you might have to change your game plan or oh it might snow um i mean it's gonna be a, a very interesting survival of the fittest kind of situation where statistically speaking one of Michigan's final three games it is statistically likely that it snows I actually looked that up the the odds that it is actively snowing during the day on December what the 5th and the 12th and then the the 28th of November so you're gonna have to change you're be open to change I guess you might not have to change but you're gonna have to be open to the idea of Hey, you might be playing a game and 
it might be 35 degrees. It might be colder. I mean, there might be some real like NFL playoff vibes in the game. And, and we've talked, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have talked about like, Oh, you know how, how mad they are when the lions play green Bay in December. I mean, it's not, it's not drastically different, right? I mean, it's probably colder than Ann Arbor, but it is something to keep in mind. So, um, Steve, I'll, I'll save my comments on the, for, for, of the schematics. I'll let you go first on it, but your thoughts on, on that part of the schedule in the fact that really half the season occurs after November 21st, which is the time that in the old college football world, that was the latest Michigan was hosting home games. It was kind of like that third week in November. Now half the season comes after Thanksgiving. So I've thrown a fit about the Lions having to play in Green Bay. Like, not surprised to hear that. Well, I mean, it is like every year. You know, (laughs) Green Bay comes to Detroit in like September, and Detroit's got to go to Lambeau Field in like the last game of the year. I feel like it's like, you know, three of the last five years. I don't know, whatever year it was, the Lions were playing to win the division. It feels like Lambeau was always the last place, but right. uh, Michigan. If the weather part I hadn't thought as much about as far as the as much as the crowd deal. Uh, the weather's I feel like I don't know if it's an equalizer. I think it puts more pressure on trench play. Mm-hmm. As if I mean the trenches are already, I think, where games are won, but bad weather lends itself to you really gotta win in the trenches. I mean, you know, you're opening up to a possibility where passing the football is gonna be really difficult and re- asking your receivers to catch difficult balls could be borderline impossible, you know? Uh, so I think the onus is going to be on being able to run the football and stop the run, you know? So I think that's something just naturally uh, from the calendar standpoint that Michigan, and I, you got to think though, and I'm not saying Michigan's the only one, I'm sure all the other schools have talked about it. Something they've prepared for. You got to mm-hmm. think, you got to think, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. they know where the calendar's at. Uh, my biggest thing has been about the, the, the crowd. Sure. Dan Mullen already came out yesterday for Florida complaint, not complaining, but saying <laughs> like, Hey, like we need a crowd. The, the, they lost to Texas A&M in college station yesterday. It sounded like I didn't watch any of that game, but it sounded that appears that they had a pretty raucous crowd. Yeah, and, it was, right? I don't know what the capacity was. It, it really looked like a like a legit home game. Well, yeah, like a, maybe not like an A and M home game because they got a pretty big stadium, but like it could have passed for like an ACC home game. I feel yeah, like enough to at least enough to you know, and you're seeing it more and more. Uh, LSU lost at Mississippi State to home. Not that that you know LSU lost at Missouri yesterday, but you know you're seeing more and more where teams are winning, beating quality teams on the road. You know, Kansas State beat Oklahoma. You know, you're wondering if the home road situation is being negated a little bit by the fact that there aren't fans or as many fans in the crowd as what you're used to, right? Mm-hmm. That's and and the funny thing is you talked about how nobody in the Big Ten's had to answer about the weather. You know, Mullins, the first one's like the first one I really can think of that has discussed the crowd situation. You know, you wonder you ask. Nobody asked Chris Kleeman at Kansas State, like, hey, was it easier to win against Oklahoma in Norman because there weren't as many people in the crowd? Like, did it make a difference? You got to think it had to make 
some kind of difference. So I think both of them are real factors for sure. It's just a matter, you know, it's always a matter of how much. And I think this is where, how do you say it? Like pure coaching can really make a difference and preparation. You know, you talk about having your team ready to go in adverse situations. I think these are the types of deals where it can really make a difference. So, you know, we talk about how maybe good coaching can't win you a game, but bad coaching can lose you a game. Could be a situation, you know, this year where, cause this, I mean, we're already seeing right now, this already has the looks of one of the wackiest football season, college football seasons right. ever. I mean, Alabama won yesterday, but they gave up 500 plus yards and gave up 47 points to an Ole Miss team. That's probably going to win what three, you know, two or three. Well, I have no prediction, right? That's it's true. Just, right? it's it's yeah, they might, they, yeah. yeah. They might win. Or maybe they'll <laughs> win out. I don't know, but this already has the looks of, you know, one of the wackiest college football seasons ever, which to me says, I think there's more of a premium on, on the coaching aspect, you know? And so again, I don't know if you, I don't know. Can you coach your team through bad weather? I don't know. I don't know if that's really a thing or not, but you can at least, you know, prepare your team for the possibility. Uh, and also, I don't know, prepare your team for the possibility of, crowd versus no crowd. I don't know how you, I don't know, really actually really wouldn't know how you'd go about that. Cause you know, the thing we always hear is that you pipe in crowd noise for practice to try to prep your team for a loud stadium, but how do you kind of prep your team for a, an empty horseshoe or an empty, um, I don't even know what Minnesota stadium is called right now, but TCF bank stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And so uh, that, I don't know how you prepare your team for an empty TCF bank stadium, you know, so it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I've always, I've kind of wondered again, like I said, why they haven't asked more coaches about the crowd deal. Mullen saying something on Saturday about the Florida, Texas A&M game, though, really opened my eyes to like the idea that, you know, a, an actual existing road environment is intimidating and can affect your players and non-existent road environment may not impact the opposing team and may make, may kind of negate the idea of a home field advantage. Yeah. So first on the weather, cause I think these are, in my opinion, these are two separate discussions, but on the weather, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it does change your game plan. Probably not the worst year. If you're, if you're Michigan to have what three starter starting running backs, effectively three running backs who have started at least five games for you. Um, that, that doesn't hurt. Probably not the best year to have four new starting offensive linemen, but but as we've discussed, I think maybe last week or two weeks ago, it does feel like this offensive line, Michigan's offensive line, I mean, they have the size and they have the strength. It's it, our, our concern was always the pass protection. Um, it does seem like they've got a few guys who can who can move, you know, move that line of scrimmage a little bit. Um, you know, think about Filiaga, 345, Stuber, 338. Um, you know, I don't know what Mayfield 320 something, but yeah, it's, um, they're going to have to run the ball. They're going to have to, um, play really smart too. I think, I think that's the big thing. It's like, you can probably still throw. I think Dwayne Haskins kind of showed that right. Didn't he against, uh, against Michigan in 2018, but, but you, 
you can't, you have to know when not to throw. And that's from a coaching standpoint and from a quarterback standpoint, like, Hey, if you don't have a grip on the ball, don't sling it. Right. And if, 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 um, you know, receivers seem to have stone hands, don't keep trying. Maybe that was, I, I think there's been some games in the past where Michigan, maybe not under Harbaugh, but like, it just seemed like they kept trying to make the pass happen. It just wasn't happening. Um, so yeah, you have to be really smart offensively. Defensively, you just got to have you got to have really tough, hungry players because um, I think anyone who's played sports in the cold knows it's it's very much a mental game. I mean, I, there have been games that that I've been in and other people I'm sure have been in where you just look at the other team and you're like, they don't want to be here at all. They're cold. They're ready to go home. They're done. And it, and it won't happen as much in like a Big Ten Division One setting. But if Michigan is able to tackle with conviction on the defense side of the ball, continue to like stick to schemes and and doesn't look like they don't want to be there, that can make it that I mean, that really can make a big difference, especially maybe in those like toss up games like like Penn State or Ohio State. Um, Wisconsin is November 14th, so that that probably won't be a like that cold. That's, you know, within the realm of a typical regular season. But yeah, especially I feel like that Penn State game. And so what I don't think it will be the case is I don't think I, I like maybe I'm wrong here. I do not buy into the like Southern players don't know how to play in the cold talk. Like I, I think every Michigan fan has this fantasy that there's going to be a bowl game in Chicago someday and they're going to like and Michigan will like steamroll Florida or, you know, Miami or LSU or somebody like. 42 to nothing because the players won't know how to practice in the cold. I don't think that will come to play, especially in a big 10 season uh, because you got to think every coach is having their team practice outside all year. Right. I mean, that's, we talked about the preparation for the weather. Got to think even in December, Michigan's going to be like, no, you're outside because that's what you're playing in. Maybe not for the whole three hour practice or four hour practice, but um yeah, I mean, they're probably going to practice out. So I, th- I think players will get used to it as the fall progresses. As far as the fans, I am very curious to see if the Big Ten does stick to this complete no fan. Or I think I think the parents of the players are allowed to go. Um, or, the, or the family members of the players are allowed to go. But yeah, I mean, really, pretty much everyone has had some semblance of fans. Like we haven't actually totally, I think Clemson played wake four. I think there's been a couple games that were like completely fan free, but most of them there's been like maybe 5,000, 10,000 A&M looked like they had 60,000, but um, it's, we haven't really seen that. And I think, I think you're right. I think it does come down to coaching. And what I think it, where I'm very curious about Michigan is not so much the road games because I, I think I think they'll be relatively ready. I'm very curious about like the home games because I think Michigan doesn't get shell-shocked on the road. I don't think the crowd necessarily scares them. Maybe Penn State's does if, if Penn State scores like two or three straight touchdowns. But 
I think where where Michigan, I think they have more of a home advantage than a road disadvantage, if that makes sense. I think the banner, I think the the band, the the giant crowd, uh, you know, all the theatrics and traditions of Michigan Stadium. I think that I think that naturally gets players hyped up for a game. And Jim Harbaugh, I think he does. I mean, there's lots of different things he does well and, and things he doesn't do well as a coach. I think, I don't think he's a motivational speaker coach. You think about like a PJ Fleck. I, I think he just speaks motivational speech. I, that's his language. You know, James Franklin, you can kind of get the vibe where you're like, okay, you can see like the, the any given Sunday hype up speech type of vibe from him. Jim Harbaugh, I think, I think was it, was it the documentary, the Amazon series? where it was kind of like his speech was, all right, let's play football. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, like, you know, certainly, certainly can be motivating, but I don't know if he has been a motivational speaker coach at Michigan. And you've heard some players, some former players have, have kind of echoed that sentiment where it's like, you know, Don Brown gives the fiery speech, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Gaddis or at the time Drevno might've, but Harbaugh necessarily didn't necessarily do that. Wasn't like their focus. They wanted their players almost to be level-headed when they go on the field. And there's some value in that. You don't want to, you know, be red between or red in the eyes, red between the ears. You you don't want to be, um, you don't want to be too hyped up. But I do wonder. I mean, without fans, you kind of have to create your own energy. And so, um, curious to see how Michigan and other schools do it. I don't know if it advantages or disadvantages Michigan. But Steve, I think you kind of said it. Do 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 you think Michigan is more likely or less likely to win on the road at Minnesota October twenty fourth, knowing that there will be no fans in the stands? I think they are more likely to win because of that, and so it does make a difference. And I think it is going to lead to a very um, fascinating season. Again, you you mentioned the SEC and the and the Big Twelve. I mean, things are all over the place. Uh, you, you wonder if there'll be more of the better team is just going to win more often than that. Or, or our teams, I don't know, the whole momentum, the topsy-turvy element of these games, going to be going to be interesting to watch. But, yeah, so uh, good question. Two, two things that I don't think are, I mean, they're being discussed, but I don't think they're being discussed quite enough. And I am curious if the Big Ten kind of looking at how the SEC and the ACC and the the Big 12 are handling crowd size. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know that this is, but I do wonder, do they kind of, do the Big 10 schools kind of look down there and say, well, that's a nice chunk of coin. <laughs> you know, Iowa's cutting four sports. Minnesota's cutting a couple sports. Are they kind of looking saying like, well, we need the money, not just them, but every school. Um, so we'll be fascinating. It also, I think state legislature or state orders have to have to be put in place to beyond our realm. Next question from Will G25. These are two quick hitter ones. So maybe uh, well, we can answer them quickly. Who leads the team in sacks? And then who will be the top four wide receivers? So we can start with the sacks. Feels like a pay Hutchinson to battle. I'm going to go with Hutchinson. I mean, he shed some weight. I still, I think it was 
I think it was Alan True actually who dropped the Ryan Kerrigan comparison. Uh, you know the old Purdue yep. defensive end. I think that f- now that Hutchinson's kind of slimmed down a little bit, and I've seen him in person at the parent protest, um, he does look like he's he's slimmed down. Just I mean, not no, it's not like he's like skinny. I mean, he's still huge, right? But it's it just seems like he's a little bit uh, more cut. Maybe can move a little bit quicker. I think now that he's got that, I mean, he was what third on the in the Big Ten and quarterback pressures last year something something ridiculous like that for not having that many sacks i think this is a year where hutchinson gets a lot of sacks your thoughts i'm going with quitty sure so yeah I, I, it's pick your poison though there right i mean i think either of those guys could easily really will be one of the more fascinating like i don't want to say a one-on-one battle but who ends up with more sacks i mean both these guys are more than capable. Quiddy's gotten a uh, gotten a lot of NFL love mm-hmm. lately, as far as like 2021 mock drafts and stuff. So the physical tools are there. They'll feed off each other, right? I mean, it really could just be a matter of one game where if one guy's playing better, maybe the other guy gets more one-on-one opportunities. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, they're that close. So it could go either way. I'll go with Quiddy just because you picked Hutchinson. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Pay could could be wrong I and mean, we don't ha- I don't have the stopwatch. I feel like Pay moves a little bit quicker and Hutchinson's maybe a little bit stronger. I think again, you look at them next to each other, they both look like defensive ends. It's not like these are like um you know, it's I don't know, it's not like a cartoon where one guy's tall and skinny and the other guy's short and stout. I mean, they're both they're both ginormous, but if you look at their traits, I do think Pay is lined up a little bit more based on what his skill set is to get more sacks, I would go with Hutchinson. I think this is going to be maybe not an all American year for him. I think this is going to be like a, a very Ryan Kerrigan type year where he's just disrupting everything. Um, so who knows what that looks. I don't know what a number is and over the course of eight, nine games, but yeah, sacks are sacks are pretty random top four wide receivers. I'm going to go ahead for will. I'm going to expand it to the tight ends. And, and other pass catchers as well. Yeah, I actually picked Giles Jackson to lead the team in receiving yards. I think his yards after the catch are going to be what what separates him a little bit because 3.85 shuttle time, that's that's uh, it's faster than anybody does at the, at the NFL Combine. I mean, that's just untouchable shiftiness. And I'm sure he's added some weight. I don't know if he would always go 3.85, but still, I think... I mean, they could throw a screen pass to him, and I would trust that he could get eight yards a pop on average and more on on the big plays. So I think he's number one. I'd go with Ronnie Bell, number two. I think I'll go with Eric All, number three. Yeah, just, just you can. I just get the sense that that there's a a bit of a star brewing there. and that's not a slight at Nick Eubanks. I, I just kind of kind of get that vibe. And then uh, number four, mm, I'll go with I'll go with Sainer still. I'm not gonna. I, I I'm a big believer in that sophomore year jump for receivers, so I'm not gonna pick Ronnie Bell and Nico Collins being two recent examples, by the way. Um, so I'm not gonna go with Roman Wilson. Tempted as I am, I'm gonna go with Jackson. 
Bell, all, and then Sane were still. Uh, your your top four receivers? Close, but I'm going to reverse Bell and Jackson. I still think Ronnie Bell ends up leading the team in receiving. He did lead the team in receiving last year. So right. Not so a bad I, choice at all. Yes. So, and then I'll go Jackson second, but then the, I will go Eubanks third, and then I will go Sainer still. So I think we're close, but I do believe in Nick Eubanks. I think Eubanks mm-hmm. is a few, I think he's a future pro. I'm, but here's the thing I'm, I'm all aboard the all. I'm, I, how you would say that without saying all two other You're all in. Words. I'm all in. Yep. So I agree <laughs> fully about Eric All's ability and his potential to break out. <clears throat> but I think, I don't want to say it means that people are sleeping on Nick Eubanks necessarily, but a little bit maybe. Um, I think he's got a lot to offer. And I think he's going to be a big weapon. We talked about last or a couple episodes ago about the fact that, you know, with Nico gone, I think there's going to be more of an onus on the tight ends to make plays in the red zone. Right. Yes. So, I and I think that's probably maybe where your mind was because all's a little lankier, you know, a little more length. And he's also somebody that they might split out wide in certain sets, especially that's, the- that was the key for me. I think yes. he can do a little bit of that Gronk, Jimmy don't, Graham slot don't dis- tight end. Don't disagree one bit. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's, and I think that that's why, you know, I think you're, angle is a real possibility uh but in the red zone i think yeah i think the tight ends there's going to be a huge onus on these guys now to make plays and so i'll go with the veteran you know eubanks has kind of paid his dues i think he's legit i think he's also he actually has slimmed down a little bit himself and i you know i think he's yeah i think he's a guy that's going to make some plays you know and the the thing with him is his career I mean, his career, like, average catch is, like, what, 16 yards or something? I mean, he's – every time he gets the ball, it's a – I don't want to say big play, but it's a bigger play than a normal play. I mean, he's not a guy that's usually – he hasn't been much of a move-the-chains guy from a tight end spot as much as he's been 20, you know, 18 to 24-yard kind of guy. So, you know, what I mean by that is I actually think he's going to get the ball more. And will move the chain. He'll be more of a move the chains guy. So I think he's going to be more of a safety valve, sort of like what, you know, that's what Jake Butt was always where his value was, is like a guy on third and five, third and six, you know, sort of the way that, you know, you, you watch the NFL, you watch how the Chiefs use Travis Kelsey, you know, as a guy that mm-hmm. just get past the chains, get him the ball, move the chains, let's go, you know, and I think Eubanks, you'll see more of that this year. So, and then St. Russell, too, he'll be my fourth. And as a guy, yeah, I think really big time slept on right now. Like, nope, really has not been a lot of talk about Mike Sainer still and what he can bring in year two. We've seen what he can do in the open field. I think all you have to do is go to the Notre Dame game on his touchdown catch as far as just a glimpse, right, of what he's capable of as a guy who, like, made the cut before the defender really even made his decision type deal. I think that's a good – precursor possibly i guess to what he's capable of doing you know when you talk about the speed and space stuff i think you know he obviously he's really it's kind of funny gaddis came in before he didn't even really recruit these guys and they fit what he wants to do to yeah. a T. you know <laughs> so um so and i think saner still fits that same mold as giles obviously i think those two will feed off of each other so uh but yeah no I, i'll go ronnie bell one giles two uh eubanks three and then saner still four i'm gonna show my 
show the show my Tony Reale side here a little bit. So Eubanks last year had averaged 9.7 yards per catch. You're right. The year before it was 19.6. There you go. But his career average is 13.2. But yeah, last year, 25 catches, 243 yards. So 9.7 yards per catch, four touchdowns, a little bit more, even though he had fewer yards per catch, I think he showed a little bit more reliability. Uh, maybe not so much in that third and six. I think you bring up a good point, but I think there was more um, short yarded situations where he came through one point about Eubanks. That is fair. Who's going to play more snaps this year? Eubanks or all I I'm thinking that it's going to be Eubanks, even though all might play a good amount of like passing snaps. Eubanks simply being on the field more might just lend him to getting uh, more, more catches, more touches, which obviously could lead to more yards with bell. One thing to note, he came back to Ann Arbor before the other receivers did. And that's not, that's not to say the other receivers were wrong to do. I mean, they, they didn't do anything, but, but, you know, bell was training with Devin Gardner and in May, maybe even in April, but definitely in May. So something to keep in mind there as well. Uh, Next question comes from James Crudup, who says, although I feel the fans wanted to hear DJ Turner's name first, it's great to hear that Jamon Green is stepping up at corner. Fans seem to roll their eyes when Michigan takes a developmental guy. With that being said, why why hasn't Michigan been able to land the five-star elite corner? So, Steve, I feel like there's a couple storylines in there. We are going to talk about Jamon Green in our next episode. I uh, got a got bit of an episode looking at maybe the comeback players for this season in Michigan football guys who were maybe counted out and could play a significant role, but, but either you can take it either with a turnover screen question or as a um, five-star cornerback recruiting question, but your thoughts. Uh, you know, so David long was ranked 65th in the country. Lavert okay. Hill was ranked 132nd in the country. Ambry Thomas, actually, I just looked at this. Wasn't he 90? Yeah, he was in the top one. I'm pretty sure he was a top 100 guy. Um, 90th, right on the dot. So, so the thing is, like, they've for the most part they've recruited. It's it, the quarterback recruiting has become like this topic that it was we don't talk about enough, but now we've talked about it so much that it's kind of talked about a little, it's gone a little overboard, not dis, <laughs> not disrespecting the question at all. Cause it, it's a, I guess it's a fair question in the idea that Zordich and Michigan have produced enough top pass defenses to where you kind of wonder why those top like four or five, six corners in the country every year are giving Michigan, you know, a big shake or whatever. Um, I guess my counter is like they they've still gotten top targets like every cycle. And like the thing is, I guess I'd look at it this way is like if anybody's ever listened to Zordich talk to the media, he has his like approach with the media as far as a blunt, you know, straightforward type deal. I kind of feel like that's the way he evaluates and recruits guys too. To where it's like he's definitely not going to be bound to the rankings per se, right? Or even like, necessarily like the camp stats. Cause yeah. that's where a lot of the five stars, that's a lot of like the 
sure. the verification is like, what do their opening numbers look like? What are their, what's the height, weight, speed, shuttle? So yes and no, because there are some things. So you mentioned the shuttle. The shuttle is something I think Michigan actually really looks at at corner because that's what, okay. that's why they recruited St. Juiced. You know, he had a really good shuttle in front of them. Uh, DJ Turner had a great shuttle, but I agree as far as like the, you know, those, the one-on-ones at these camps. Yeah, I agree. A lot of times can kind of dictate, you know, the top 10 guys from the top 25 guys, I guess, best way to put it, right? Michigan, Mm -hmm. though, is like, they've stayed steady and how they evaluate that spot and who they go after. So like in 20, Selden and Green Warren were both like legitimate top corners for them. You know, Vince Gray, who's turned out he's going to be their number one guy this year. It was the opposite. It was a late eval, but one they felt good about. I was going to say they did a lot of scouting with that, didn't so they? So like corners, yeah. So like they've done two things. They've either gotten guys who they identified early. So Jamon Green was, and I've said this a thousand times at this point, Jamon Green was legitimately one of Michigan's tip-top targets at corner in 18. And like the theme I have to keep going back to with the 18 classes, like people have to remember they had just signed top five classes in 16 and 17, right? Classes that were full of guys that were capable of coming in and playing not necessarily in year one, but at least year two. So in 18, a lot of the aim, again, I'm not, I'm not saying it was the perfect approach or that, but it's, I mean, it's, it is lending. It's, it's playing out pretty well is they didn't, they weren't necessarily looking at guys. I'm not saying they wouldn't take, you'll take any guy who can make an instant impact. Right. I mean, if the top, if they could get, if they could have gotten 15 top 100 guys in 18, they would have taken 15 top 100 guys, but Mm -hmm. The way their roster was constructed, the depth they had built, they felt comfortable in taking guys who maybe weren't highly ranked or like, but weren't finished products. And we're seeing that now this year, we're seeing guys now being, we're hearing good things about a lot of the guys in that cycle as far as they're starting to get there. We've heard a lot about Julius Welshoff. We're starting to finally hear about Jamon Green. So we've heard about Jamon Green, but not in the idea that he could start. I said last week, the fact that Jamon Green is being named or listed as a guy who could potentially start at second corner, I think is one of the best possible scenarios if you're Michigan or Michigan fan, because we've heard Zordich rave about DJ Turner in 19, thinking the thought being that DJ Turner was ahead of Green and other guys. So if Jamon Green has caught or surpassed DJ Turner, that means he's hitting the potential that the coaches thought he had because Green was not a year one or a year two guy when they recruited him. And then you talk about guys like Van Sumeren, and we've already seen it. We talked about on the board. You were there, Zach, you know, on the board talking about 18s really almost outperformed 17 at this point. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, and at the, at the end of the day, it's going to be hard to imagine that 18 didn't end up outperforming that class. So 19, they get DJ Turner was a top target 20. They get green Warren and Selden who were, I mean, Andre Selden committed to Michigan two years before he signed. That's his well. Top he tar- finished was was he not a top? He top well, he's 20, definitely top two hundred. He was a four star guy. Yeah, yeah. And so was Green Warren. Um, you know, I haven't. I didn't look at the corner rankings every year, 
but I feel like most years Michigan have gotten, they've gotten the guys that they wanted. Now 21 McBurrows is a guy that it's, I'm interested to see his senior film. Now Sam picked him as a sleeper on a recruiting podcast. He's lightning fast. I think Ohio state's actually still sniffing around there a little bit. Everyone's waiting to see Aquinas play because they haven't played yet uh, with him and Jaden hood committed to Michigan also. You know, but but McBurrows is a guy they feel comfortable with. They're going to try to take a second guy. I would just, I would assume, but twenty two, kind of that cycle. And we've taught you again. This don't want to go too recruiting here, but it's a cycle where they're legitimately in on, I don't know, five, six top one hundred and fifty guys. So if you're married to the recruiting rankings, that's a cycle to look at as far as like Michigan maybe reaping the benefits of consistently putting out top pass defenses. But overall, I, I I hesitate to like criticize their recruiting at corner too too much because every year we we go in and every year we come out with Michigan defending the pass better than almost anybody. And Zach, this is where maybe you would come in. I argue more and more than more times that more often than not in the bigger games, I feel like they've been let down in the trenches than they have been by their pass defense. You talked about Haskins in 18 at the weather. His Jersey was as white at the end of the fourth quarter as it was when he took his first snap in the first quarter. Mm -hmm. And there's only so much that you can blame uh, cornerbacks and safeties for at that point, especially when you're trying to defend the caliber of athlete that Ohio state always has on the outside, you know? So I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like Michigan, I guess, long story short, Michigan's mostly gotten the guys they've wanted at corner each cycle. You know, it's not a position I feel like they've had to dig too deep. And when they have, they've gotten a guy like Vince Gray, who's really their number one guy right now. I mean, that's really 18 is the only cycle where they did miss on some guys. And yeah, Gray was the Gray was the guy they took a late flyer on, and, and now he's their top guy. So I, I just it's not a position I feel like is open to huge criticism. But twenty two is a cycle. I feel like we're getting really into the future, but it is a cycle where Michigan has a legitimate chance to maybe capitalize on some of the concrete numbers they've produced as far as pass defense goes. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the, the real quick, quick answer to the five star, I mean, how, if you think about the five stars, Michigan has landed, they have either been at positions where they have produced like legitimate first round picks or pro bowlers, or those were players who were in within a, what, four hour drive of Michigan. So like they actually have some, a lot of times they had a connection and you think about Michigan's cornerback recruiting. I, I, you would know better than me, Steve. It feels like they get often the best one in the area. I mean, you know, they have the lineage of uh, Lewis, Hill, Thomas, Selden, and and you talk about Gray, and there, there have been some other pickups from the state in, in between. So it's not like, I mean, you kind of have to recruit what you can recruit. If there's a cornerback, uh, I looked at the top cornerback from the 2020 class, uh, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, he was like from Georgia committed to Georgia. And there was another guy, uh, you know, 
commit to LSU. Well, Derek Stingley, honestly, if they're, if they're, if they're producing all Americans now, Jordan Lewis was an all American, but uh, in terms of guys who both produce in the NFL, think about LSU's lineage of cornerbacks in the NFL. Think about their list of all Americans. I mean, that's, that's key. So I'm not here to say Michigan's recruiting perfectly at corner, but I, I think I remember, I only, I'm not, a recruiting reporter, but I do hear things along the way. And I remember specifically hearing and, and even Zordich kind of hinted at this strong mention of how, how confident they felt in gray once they got him and that they, they felt like they really did their homework. And then DJ Turner was another player. They, they really, even I felt like that was one of their top targets. Well, sure enough, those two are, starting or projected starters right and, and Jamon Green you've talked about him he's kind of in that mix as well so yeah I guess I guess we'll have to see but um you also I wouldn't I wouldn't lose sleep over recruiting at the, maybe maybe the one position where year in year out they're developing all Big Ten caliber players I mean I'm looking at 19 and 20 as far as like the guys they offered and like 19 you just go down the list so like Michigan actually quietly was in the top five for Derek Stingley, but they were never, ever going to get him. I mean, he's from Baton Rouge. Like that was <laughs> never, <laughs> never going to be, you know, that's one of those things where it's like you hesitate to even report that Michigan's right. <laughs> in the top five. Cause like, it's like, he's not going to Michigan. Andrew Booth. No, like no shot. You won't even get into Julian Barnett. Um, but just go down the list and like, you know, Jalen Perry, Michigan State. He was committed to Georgia originally, Michigan State. So Takori Couch was committed to Michigan for a while, but mm-hmm. never visited. Flipped to Miami. I actually think he started for Miami yesterday. He's Clemson. from like what 15 yeah. minutes from yeah, he's from Miami. Yeah, Hollywood, Florida. So like I mean, it's not of, always regional, but that is one no, ticket it, that, to getting five-star recruits, I feel like. Right. But great, but that's a your point about you know, and so we kind of on the recruiting pod, we talk about, uh, you know, people griping about Michigan's defensive tackle recruiting where it's like, it's crazy, but year in and year out, like the top 20 defensive tackles in the country, like 16 of them are from like either Georgia, one of the Carolinas, <laughs> Louisiana, Florida, or California. I mean, it's insane. Like, you know, it's not easy necessarily to, and with corner, you know, it's like a lot of these guys, yeah, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida, 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 Mississippi, Texas, Georgia, Alabama. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, it's not easy to, you know, get some of these guys or whatever, but to be a hundred percent fair and on it, like Michigan, for the most part, these are, you know, Salim Turner, Muhammad, who went Salim Turner, Turner, Muhammad went to Stanford. He was a guy Michigan liked, but like, you know, Jalen Perry was someone they stayed on after he committed to Georgia. And DJ Turner was a guy who was 100% a top target for them throughout the process. So, you know, it is a deal where, yeah, there are guys they've missed on, guys they liked. But for the most part, it's not one of the classes or positions where I'd say they've ever had to dig too far down their board. You know, right. and so you combine that with the fact that they usually put out a top pass defense year in and year out. You know, I understand, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the from the ranking standpoint, I understand where it's like, man, how come they're not getting like 
one of these guys that maybe they didn't even pursue, you know, not a Derek Stingley, but how come a Andrew Booth, you know, or a Tyreek Stevenson, how come they're not considering Michigan heavier? I get it, but you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into it, I guess is the, yeah. that's is the, is the best way to put it. So, well, and I, the, we're, we're a little over time on this discussion, so I'll, I'll try to wrap it up quickly. One factor is Zordich is a real X's and O's guy. As you mentioned, he's real, calls it like he sees it. He, he's very honest with us. He's very honest with his players. Um, it's very much like a uh, an acquired taste, maybe, uh, where the players who start for him are exceptional. and But not everyone starts for him. And so I would be inclined to think that he's more of a get me the right guys, I'll develop them kind of coach, then I got to get the most talent on the, on this team. And so maybe a little bit more of a coach coach than a recruiting coach. But to Michigan fans, if the results are there, I would argue the results are there. I mean, there's the pro football focus stat, which Vincent Gray is a part of now. He's part of that, you know, lowest completion percentage allowed against group that, Basically, the last five, six years, it's only been Michigan players that are in this group holding quarterbacks to below a 40% completion percentage or whatever it is. So um, it is an interesting question. But I, yeah, I, I do wonder. I mean, I think, I think we listed six or seven cor- cornerbacks who were top 200 recruits. I mean, that's, that's not out of the league of how they're recruiting at other positions. So we'll have to see year in year out. It does seem like the cornerback recruiting in 2022 is off to a good, again, that's far in the future, but yeah, we're going to pause for a quick break, but don't worry. We'll be back in a moment. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA champions league 24 seven. The UEFA champions league channel is a new 24 hour streaming channel serving nonstop goals, highlights and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for waiting. We're back. Let's get back to the discussion. Next question. Oh, real quick, because you, you actually touched on it. Got a few questions about this. Uh, the 2017 class versus the 2018 class. So I did my project, projected depth chart last week, my latest one, and I projected five members of the 2017 recruiting class to start and eight members of the 2018 recruiting class to start. Now with in the defense of the 2017 class, Ambry Thomas, Nico Collins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Tariq Black, um, Cesar, Cesar Ruiz. Ruiz. Uh, if I'm missing one, forgive me, they've all started for Michigan. So it's not to say they they only produced five starters, but 
I think it's very clear now that the 2017 class underachieved. It will not go down as a top five recruiting class in the country for that year. And the 2018 class, which has Mayfield, Hutchinson, um, McGrone, Hayes, Ronnie Bell, Hassan Haskins. I mean, they, they have eight projected starters and, and several projected second string players. That is going to ach- over achieve the number 22 ranking that it received. Now, part of that was class size. It wasn't a, a humongous class. I think it was 20 people or 20 players. But Steve, you, you cover recruiting. You've, you've covered it for the entire Harbaugh era. And then some time before that, it did feel like 2018. There was a bit of a shift because the other part, not just starters, there are also fewer players transferring from the 2018 class than the 2017 class. I mean, you go down the list of the, what, 30 recruits. I, th- I think only 11 of them are on the team right now. And some went pro early, but that's still, you're looking at about half of them have transferred. And so any any insight uh, for our listeners as to what changed, maybe not a lot changed, maybe a ton changed, but but I'm, I'm curious because it did feel like that was, Whatever they did in 2018, it felt like they applied it to 2019 and 2020 in terms of how they go about uh, recruiting under Jim Harbaugh. Uh, I mean, that's a tough. It's there's a lot to it. I think one thing in 17 specifically, I think there was a lot of pressure on Michigan to win the in-state battles. Yeah, pipeline nine, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of VIP type discussion, I suppose, could be had here. Uh, there's just guys I don't think Michigan maybe really in retrospect should have taken in that cycle, even maybe despite a ranking per se that they did. Not saying they took them for the ranking necessarily, but perception as far as beating rival schools in certain instances. In 18, I, you know, the shift – you know, I think Matt Dudek had something to do with it a little bit. I think his work. Mm-hmm. I also think Michigan became, I don't want to say became more comfortable in just actually the just straight up evaluation of the situation. I'm not saying in Michigan under Harbaugh, I don't think Michigan's ever been a rankings driven, you know, as far as like who they recruit. You know, because they've right. never been afraid to think outside of the box. You, know, you think Quiddy Pay might end up being the best player in that 17 class. He was one of the lowest ranked guys. Right. Had next to no offers when Michigan got involved. So they've never been afraid to take chances on guys. I, you know, it's it's weird because I have been so close to the whole thing, but it's it's kind of a mystery to me because there's a lot of the guys in the 17 class that really didn't pan out or didn't get to their full potential that it's kind of a mystery to me as far as why they maybe didn't get there. I mean, some guys have legit gripe, like not gripes at reasons, you know, Luigi Villain has never been hundred percent healthy. Mm-hmm. This might be a year. Maybe he gets there. Right. Um, McCaffrey's a guy I think we all thought would start at some point. And 
I still think he's a guy could maybe take the Peters route and still be a really, really productive college quarterback elsewhere. You know, I don't think that story's over by any means. Right. Filiaga Stuber are right. two yep. in terms of guys like Absolutely. they could have been starters two years ago, but yep. they had Unwenu and Bredesen. Well, and we're and, seeing what and we've seen what Mike is big Mike is doing. Right. How are you gonna beat you're not gonna beat that guy out for the job, you don't think, looking back, right? I mean, it's it's you know, he's being graded as one of the best linemen in the NFL mm-hmm. right now. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, because Chuck Chuck and Stuber specifically have a chance and Jeter have a chance to kind of salvage that cycle, I guess, to an extent. Because, I mean, yeah, the attrition, I mean, Oliver Martin's still bouncing around. I mean, that's like, you know, he was one that – Man, I mean, I, I've watched him live multiple times. Our people saw him live. That's not one we didn't think would turn out. Donvin had a decent, a solid career, but never – well, I don't think – you know, I think his last year he was never 100% healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that played a big factor in him not being as effective as he could have been. So not really on him necessarily. Uh, Tariq Black, you know, the deal there. So um, – you know, there's, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of kind of extenuating factors that come into it, but I think with right. 18, I think Michigan, I don't know. I mean, they, cause the guys they took at the tip top are the ones that didn't pan out either. Mustafa Muhammad, Miles Sims were two of the highest ranked guys they took in that cycle were the guys that really didn't do anything. So I think a lot of it was really an emphasis on eval and also you know, I don't know. They did. They allowed the patience has been there to let these guys grow, like the ones who needed it, you know, and to let them. And maybe it's a culture thing. I, I do think now I would say this 1920, especially. And maybe this is where it was. I'm trying to talk myself through this a little bit more. I think about it. But 19 and 20, especially definitely a shift as far as like the character, the culture aspect of it. Again, not saying Michigan didn't recruit character or wasn't trying to build a culture in those previous classes, but I do feel like there's been more of an emphasis on that the last two cycles, especially, but I think as far as you, I mean, you're seeing what the 18 class is starting to do. And I think that's what I posted last week. It could be a situation where 16 of these 20 guys make an impact in a Michigan uniform. Mm-hmm. In today's college football, that's crazy. Right. You know, without, I mean, they've only had two guys leave. That's as, they've already lost two of their 20 of the 2020 class. Now, granted, the 2020 class is a lot larger, but still, you know, so I, I do, but I would say 100%, the culture shift in 19 and 20 was, was a big deal. And you wonder maybe if that's where it started was in 18. I just know. So I just know going into 18, the focus was on taking high ceiling guys to complement what they thought was a great foundation they built in 16 and 17, if that makes sense. So people always talk about defensive tackle. And I always say, realistically, right now, Michigan should be going into this season with a fourth year Aubrey Solomon, Duran Irving Bay, mm. Phil Paya, who hasn't, again, if we're just being honest, has not made an impact yet. We'll see if that happens or not. But again, a guy who 
they beat Notre Dame and USC for, like a legit prospect, hasn't made any kind of impact. A fourth-year Luigi Villain has not made any impact. You know, so what people have to remember is when the 18 class was being recruited and signed, those guys were all still on Michigan's campus. So it's the same idea where it's like, okay, well, Michigan just signed – I'm trying to think of a position they've loaded up at, but like, you know, you sign five safeties, you know, the last two years. So safety well, think about not- a receiver real quick. Cause they had yeah. the 2017 class four receivers, all top 200 recruits. Right. So like 18, it right. was a flyer on Ronnie Bell. Exactly. So your, your thought process for like cycle to cycle is partially based on what you've accumulated in the cycles previous. And so people, are always pissed off about Michigan hasn't recruited enough defensive tackles. And it's like, well, they recruited a bunch of them <laughs> in 17, but none of them panned out, you know? So it's like when, when the, when they signed the guys they signed in 18, like a Julius Welshoff is like Julius Welshoff was never recruited or aimed to be like a first or second year guy, but he wasn't, he wouldn't have needed to be if the guys they signed in 17 or even James Hudson, that's the other one. I forgot about James Hudson, who was one of the higher ranked guys of all of them. Mm-hmm. They even moved James Hudson to offensive line because they thought they'd already, they felt so good about the guys they'd recruited on the defensive line that they could have moved him to the other side of the ball. So, you know, that's one of those things where then they try, they circumvent it with Smith and Hinton in 19. And then they've kind of gone back to the, I don't want to say project types, but guys who might take a year or two in 20 and, and 21, we'll see if they fit you know, they're still working on Rayshon Benny and uh, George Rooks, but they're recruiting more true DTs. And in 22 will be another cycle where I think they're really going to go strong on the interior. But yeah, I mean, I do think a culture, I do think a shift in like the culture of the type of kid they were trying to recruit. I do think that happened a little bit, especially in 19 and 20. I'm not going to say it was 18 for sure. I just know in 18, they really, they felt good at that time about 16 and 17 and thought they could take a lot of high ceiling guys that weren't year one or year two guys to complement that foundation. You know, of course, if one of these guys turns out to be a year one, year two guy, then hell yeah. But not the onus was not on finding instant impact guys as much. It was like, Hey, let's find a, another quitty pay. Right. I mean, let's, you know, let's find a guy that in two or three years is getting, you know, NFL draft buzz as a first or second round pick. So, right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's important to note. It's not like they went from doing no scouting to tons of, I mean, they, they you know, I don't think the shift was like a 100% or a total 180. It was like maybe like a 20 degree turn. It does feel like they, they had the, the, the doing their homework in terms of scouting it just felt different. I mean, Ronnie Bell, I think that's a really good example. There is no way you watch his high school film. He won Kansas city player of the year. And there's, there was no other FBS offers. I mean, that's I mean, Harbaugh to be fair, got a little lucky that he has family in the Kansas city area that kind of turned him on to it. But man, that was, that was a miss on the rest of the country. You know, I think, I think Vincent Gray is another player who, I mean, there he had power five offers, but um, I don't know what he was doing in the three-star territory 
and maybe it's the 40 time. I, I don't know, but no and classic. Then, so hold on. So Vince, like, and that's the thing. And this is where, this is the part where I would, t- I would say like, again, I'm always going to back our evaluators. Cause I think our eval guys are the best in the business, but Vince Gray was a guy who quietly got Oregon, Penn state, UCLA, Michigan, all way after his senior season was over. The all-star games were about to begin, you know, evals were like pretty much done, I guess is the best way to put it at that point. If that makes sense, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's like ever the senior film has been watched, you know? And so a guy where he had an offer sheet of a four-star guy by the end of the day, at the end of the day. Right. But like a lot of those offers came in really late. Michigan was just the one that he had wanted the most. I mean, he's a kid who easily could be playing in UC at UCLA, could be playing out of Oregon right now for sure. So, right. Yeah. So you're right. You're hundred percent right. When you say like gray, especially as a guy like, yeah, like how looking back, how is that a three-star? And that's where it's like the, the, the evals, the evaluators, they're not infallible. I mean, and that's, you know, and sometimes yeah. they're late to the party. Kind of where Absolutely. I was going with this is yeah. I did I did a story series this summer looking at so we have a cool tool. I really like it. It's the recruit history tool. And you can kind of see where a recruit, like when he was first evaluated, what it was and and how it changed throughout the cycle, which sometimes can be up to three years, depending on these players, but is more often maybe like one and a half to two years. 2018. 2019-2020 had tremendous players who just who rocketed up the rankings for Michigan. Guys who sometimes it was after they committed, sometimes it was before they committed, but maybe after Michigan pursued. They had players, I mean, Charbonnet is a good example. He was not a top 50 recruit when Michigan started reaching out. Um, you know, I... I Hibner's like what the, the Mr. 1000, but, but trying to think of like other examples that have, that have already played. I mean, they're recruiting some of these guys when, or, or not recruiting them because they're recruiting everybody, but they're identifying these top targets months before they become the nation's top targets. So I felt, and to me, that's a sign that they're doing a little bit more homework and, and importantly, they know what they want because every coach, a, a good running back at Michigan might not be a good running back at another school and vice versa. And, and so I think there's a lot to be said, and maybe this is a Zordich thing. If Zordich sees a guy and he knows that he wants that per- player and he knows exactly how to develop them into a starter, that means a whole lot more than as, as good as our evaluators, uh, as good as our evaluators are, that means a whole lot more than saying, hey, this guy's the most athletic or this guy has the highest ceiling. Because if, and, you know, this is where Nua may be developing that defensive line. I mean, if, if they see a guy and they're like, I know exactly how to turn you into, well, Ed Warner may be a good example. I know he didn't necessarily start the recruitment of Jalen Mayfield, but he knew exactly how to turn Jalen Mayfield into first rounder. And so I think, I think that's a big part of it too, is I think they know what they want a little bit more. And then I also think the evaluations and, and you know, part of it's they had more time. The 2017 class, I mean, they're offering guys what less than a year after they arrived on after the coaching staff arrived on campus 
I mean, some of these guys had been in the NFL, uh, so they, they hadn't necessarily been watching these recruits freshman, sophomore, high school tape. They hadn't necessarily done, you know, all the conversations with the high school coaches. So that's part of it too, is you, know, you get settled in, you get better at this. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing your job, you get better at it, I guess. So a few factors that took a long time. Last question. It can be quick. It's a fun one. Scott Bell asked us, um, <laughs> You know, very, very, very pressing and important question. But he asked us, sorry, I'm pulling it up. Had all the recruiting pages open. All right. Um, do you two have a go-to choice when calling a coin flip and when playing rock, paper, scissors? And if so, what events earlier in your lives helped shape your strategies, philosophies when it comes to these events? So I don't have a, a great origin story. Coin flip, I just say heads every time. I it's a 50 50 chance. Um, no, I, I have no belief that tails is more likely in a given scenario, rock, paper, scissors. I think there's a little bit more of a mind game. I used to always start with rock. Now I always start with paper because I know so many people just start with rock. And then from there, if it's a tie, I go plus two. So if you think about rock is value one paper is value two scissors is value three, so if I do paper, then I next go to rock. And then after that, it would be scissors. And so the reason why is because so many people like to keep their thing the same. They're like, I'm going to stay the same and see if they change. So if, if we both do paper, I think the statistical odds are high that the other person is going to do paper again. So therefore, I'm going to do scissors. And so I'm, I'm kind of gaming for that. No origin story. Wish I had a cool origin story about rock, paper, scissors, but I also haven't played either. I haven't played rock, paper, scissors in like a decade and heads, tails. I don't even know the last coin flip I took part in, but Steve, any, any strategies there? No, I was just, it's, uh, you know, an fun <laughs> anarchy, anarchy for me. I just, uh, whatever I'm thinking at the time, especially with the heads and tails. I do, actually, I will say, uh, don't normally go rock off the bat. Right? So many people go rock off the bat. That's, I mean, that's, that's it though. That's, that's, I might go rock second time though. I, I know, I don't really know. It just depends on how I'm feeling, what day of the week. Um, a lot of different, what, what, you know, temperature. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that go into, uh, you know, an important decision like that. So <laughs> I would just say with, with heads and tails, there's really, I have no rhyme or reason. I've never had any inclination either way. And usually I don't go rock first. You have to know who you're playing against, you know, who you're up against in that situation. If there are comparable wits involved, you may go rock first because the other person may be cognizant enough to realize that most people go rock first. So you might be able to sneak a rock over scissors, <laughs> you know, but again, it really Outsmart comes themselves. Yeah. 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 It, so it really does come down to uh, knowledge of opponent uh, time of the day, time of the year, <laughs> that type of stuff, you know, but with heads and tails no. I mean, I just, whatever, I'll throw it up. Just do a Jerome Bettis 
against the Lions on Thanksgiving type deal. You know, you call one thing, it'll be the other. The, the whole, I don't know if any, you, you don't remember that? Uh, I don't. What? What he, what he the, Where the ref misheard what he said? Oh, man, that was horrible. That was another classic Lions. Um, but yeah, no, no, no heads or tails deal. But the rock, paper, scissors, like I said, totally depends on the opponent. But normally, I agree with you as far as like, yeah, I think most, because it's called rock, paper, scissors. So there's this psychological, where it's like you hear rock first. Mm -hmm. So simple people may throw rock. (laughs) Not, not (laughs) Not trying to insult anybody out there, but you know, the simples, might throw rock down um, simples, <laughs> but if you no, but if, but again, but it, if you're, you know, like I said, if, if it's somebody of comparable wit, you may be able to get away with throwing an early rock because they expect you to not throw rock based on the fact that most simple minded people might throw rock early. So a lot to it. That's a good question. Scott's always, always good for a good question. So Someone asked to follow up. What's the most you've ever lost in heads or tails? I I really don't know if Jeez, I've lost, even... lost anything. Like, I don't decide things by coin flip. Actually, actually, no. I had to I had to pay for a. This is a true story. Actually, had to pay for a crave case from White Castle back when I went to Michigan once, based on a heads heads or tails flip. Uh, the happy ending is that I didn't eat any of it and I'm glad I didn't um, even back then. Uh, disgusting. White as even is the white castle even still there in Ann Arbor. I don't even know. Uh, over on Packard. I mean, or Washington, Washington. Yeah. Sorry. Way out, way, yeah. way out Washington. Right. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, I mean a couple of my roommates say yeah, I was a, Wait, no, it's Packard. But yeah. Is it? It's, but it's way out, way the hell it's like out Ipsy, somewhere. Yeah. Ipsy, basically, yeah. Um, it's still there, that figures. Uh, it's actually not surprising based on the weight uh, that I had to get just to get these nasty sliders when I picked them up. So, no, that was, that was actually legitimately the last thing I can remember having to do based off of a heads, tails type deal that wasn't like uh, something stupid. So. I should have answered and said I've never lost heads or tails, but no, um, I lost. I, I it's fine. I'll you know yeah. it's no big deal. I lost that one, <laughs> um, but actually, actually, you could argue, like I said, because I didn't indulge that I might have actually been the winner uh, at the end of the day, because that's that shit's gross or that stuff's gross. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we ran out of. I think we're out of questions. I sure hope so. Um, just in the fact that. I said we were out of questions. So be sure to subscribe, share, listen again if you want. Give us a rating. Uh, you know, Be sure to check out all of our stuff over at the michiganinsider.com, michigan.247sports.com. For Steve Lorenz, I'm Zach Shaw. This has been the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast. Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something. We'll see you next time.
When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.